Here's to you, dear listeners, and welcome to Metal Gear Mondays, the most thorough Kojima-themed podcast on the internet. I am your host, Sam Wright, and we're back. It's been a little bit, but we have another interview episode today, which we're very excited about. Um, uh, It's our first Death Stranding-themed interview. We hope to get several more people from the game on the show, but... We, we're starting off our interviews with of this game with a bang uh, by talking to Mr. Tommy Earl Jenkins, Die Hard Man himself. But of course, I can't do it by myself. I've got somebody here with me who was also on the episode asking the hard-hitting questions, and that is Mr. Chris Hampton. Yes, that's right, Sam. We're trying to get the truth, the cold, hard truth. The truth. <laughs> uh yeah we uh we had a really really good time talking to tommy um on this episode um super cool oh super cool dude super cool yeah. cat uh and some some of the little bits of information that tommy shares with us are just gonna blow your mind i guarantee it Mm-hmm. guarantee it. you're gonna like the way you look i guarantee it uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah no he we we kind of we spend a lot of time talking about like his his uh his path to acting he's 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 a super like multi-pronged threat in that way because he does voice work he uh acts on screen he uh he's a dancer he's a theater actor he does he's done music but like he's got so many facets to him um, and it was just great talking to him about those things and then getting some insight into the process of Death Stranding and what it was like being on set and working with Hideo Kojima and uh, what motion capture the process was like and all that really cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, make no mistake, Tommy Earl Jenkins is the full arsenal gear. The full are the full arsenal gear. <laughs> um we do mention uh at the end of the interview um where you can can kind of uh find tommy on the internet um but we'll we'll bring it up top just so you know um follow him on twitter it is um at tj84 that's t-e-e-j-a-y-e-8-4 on um the twitters um you can also follow him on instagram at tommy underscore underscore earl underscore jenkins official um and he is also on facebook and various other things he is such a um the reason why i wanted to reach out to him in the first place was because he's such a he 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 comes across on his social media as a very warm um very inviting to the fans kind of person and he seemed very easy to approach in that way um and that definitely translates directly into speaking with him and having the chance to talk to him so please um give him a follow on uh his various social medias um and just watch watch what he does next because he's he's a he's a great talent um and yeah, and I'll talk about our stuff really quick at the top. You can go to MetalGearMondays.com and um, see all of our social media there as well. Um, again, we have obviously we have Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, all those cool things. We have our merch store, bit.ly slash MGM store, which is uh, which is really cool. Um, and then we have Patreon, Patreon.com slash MetalGearMondays. If you care to support monetarily, um, we would always appreciate that. Um, we have tears from a dollar all the way up so check it out and see what strikes your fancy um 
and all those other cool things. Um, and then as always, you can always go on Apple podcasts or other podcast apps to review us if you so choose, which would also appreciate very much. Uh, Chris, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me at Chris Hampton. I, I that's Chris Hampton second on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, PSN is proto underscore dude. Xbox is just proto dude. I think uh, LinkedIn. Uh, Try them both. If you're ever ever in the uh, Shelby Hills neighborhood of Nashville, just come look me up. Grab a beer. (laughs) Come come find me. Um, And you can find me on the internet on Twitter at Sanjul. That's S-A-N-J-U-U-L. I did get this question the other day. No, my name has nothing to do with Jules, but... I appreciate your candor. Uh, <laughs> um, and then you can also find me on, uh, I have a YouTube channel that I'm, I sporadically do videos on at bit.ly forward slash Sam does a thing. And then my PSN is Deadpool Alpha. Feel free to add me on there as well. And I think that's it, Chris, unless you had anything else crazy you wanted to drop any bombshells. Um, oh, there is a Death Stranding update. Is there? Yes. Tell me about it. Uh, it's added Santa hats to everyone. In the game. Yes. Excellent. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So without further ado, um, this is going to be our last release of 2019. Um, in a couple of days, as you're hearing this, it's going to be brand new year. So happy new year. Uh, we'll see you in the new year pretty soon after it starts. Um, once our little uh, vacay is over and... Uh, yeah, let's talk to Tommy Earl Jenkins. Yeah, let's do it. What's it been, Sam? Ten years? Look at us. A bunch of deathless freaks meeting like this. Yeah, well, good to see you too. We have here Tommy Earl Jenkins, <laughs> diehard man himself. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Absolutely. Uh, A pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, man. Absolutely. Um, we're really excited to talk to you. This is um, We've had a few interviews with some cast members of different Hideo Kojima James games in the past, but this is our first uh, Death Stranding. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so uh, we are honored that you, you are our first Death Stranding interview. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and I kind of wanted to, wanted to kick us off because uh, uh, you are from Canton, Ohio, correct? I am. Yes, I was born in Canton, Ohio. Yes, I was. So several of the voice talents we've had on the show so far um, are from the Midwest and specifically Ohio. <laughs> and <laughs> being from Ohio myself, hmm. uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on why so many actors come from that area of the country. Um, in all honesty, I don't really know, aside from the fact that they're probably the most talented. But, um, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. It's funny because when I was living in New York uh, and working, I ran into so many actors who were from Ohio in, mm-hmm. in New York. Um, and I, I don't know why that is. I, I don't honestly know. Um, I just think it is, maybe it's just coincidence. Um, and, and having said that, there are a lot of talented people who come from the Midwest and Ohio is one of those places. It's funny, you know? Um, yeah. I just think it's just, it's just, uh, it's just a coincidence, I think. 
But like I said, everyone who does come in and is pretty much is working in the industry are incredibly talented um, artists though as well. So, yeah. Do you think maybe it's just like a boredom thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be honest. I'll be like, I have to get out of Ohio. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was the point when I was uh, figuring out what it was I wanted to do, and I did know that the career that I wanted to pursue. I could get kickstarted in Ohio, but eventually I was going to have to leave in order to to move forward, you know, um, because, you know, I grew up in it's a, a small city um, and everything. And the closest the Cleveland was probably the closest city to me. That was a lot more, you know, uh, connected with the arts and the cultural side of things. Um, but eventually I was going to have to move out of that. I mean, things have changed obviously in the, in the years that I've left, you know, and Cleveland is, is a very booming town, certainly with filming and, you know, uh, theater and all of that sort of stuff is very big in Cleveland. So you could have quite a good career in Cleveland these days, I think. But at the time for me, it was, I've, I've got to get out of this town because it's just, you know, I need to break out. I'm too, I'm too big for this town. <laughs> I'm gonna be stuck. Oh, yeah. You know, I need to break out. <laughs> uh, so it was a little bit like that. So in finding like what you wanted to do, I, I, I read this and you can confirm it for me. Okay. So you started performing as a ballet dancer, correct? I did. I did. Um, yeah, I start. I started relatively young. I'm probably old for for some people, but I think everything sort of began when I sort of became a teenager. When I hit sort of thirteen, fourteen, and I did my mm-hmm. first sort of musical at fourteen. But I started. Uh, training as a ballet dancer kind of along this the same lines or along that same timeline um and that just happened purely by by fluke i always enjoyed you know singing and dancing but in the in the level of which i was being uh just kind of doing it on my own but once i started uh training with a with with a with the local ballet company and that only happened because a friend of mine was was dancing and i thought oh that looks like fun and i just sort of realized <laughs> that maybe that's something i could try try and do and i've always been sort of geared in that direction not really ever knowing why uh but i did and i just kind of followed it and it just became something that made me feel good about doing and I thought, well, let's just see where this goes. Let's just, you know, and then, you know, people telling, oh, you know, you could, this is something you could do as a career. It's something, you know, I was far too young to really think about stuff at that point. But I think somewhere along the lines, I was just on that path and that's where I was headed. And eventually that's all I could sort of see. But yes, I did sort of train as a, as a ballet dancer and dance professionally and stuff as well. Um, later in, in, as years kind of went on. Um, How long did you do the dancing for before you... Before I became what professionally or whatever. Um, Uh, Yeah. So like when, because you moved into like theater and stuff after this, correct? But I did. Well, theater, my my first, my first thing, like I said, my first professional job was 14 when I was, I did a a musical called Pearly, which is uh, uh, an amazing show. But I was, I was a young sort of kid in the chorus. Uh, And at the same time going to school and it was a summer, a summer uh, program. And I, started training with with the dance side of it uh pretty much like i said along the same lines um and dancing was always going to be it was sort of be like my first love singing was something i kind of did naturally but really focusing on the dance side of things was uh uh 
something that I just really dove into and it really kind of took me away to a, another place. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it, it, and it had so much discipline and there was so much to learn about it. And, and ballet was the first love. I eventually got into other things like, you know, jazz and contemporary and things like that. But ballet, even to this day, I'll go and watch a ballet and I, I know what I'm looking at. I know what I'm looking for and its technique and its style and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and I, and I just have such a, uh, a love for it still, even though I don't dance anymore in terms of like that, I still have this great passion for, you know, there are great artists that I love in certain companies. And I always, if I'm in New York, I'll get a chance to try and go and see a ballet or, or something like that. So, you know, it still plays a big part in my life. So from that like transition going from ballet into theater productions, mm -hmm. um, you've worked with things like cats. Yes. Fame. Aladdin. Yeah. Jersey boy. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah. So my, you know, my career spans, you know, over decades, pretty much. If I think about from the time I started. Um, so all of those shows came a little bit later in life, but some of them a little earlier, but the transition from going, um, you know, uh, from strictly dance to, to musical theater uh, in, in that sense, I had to make a decision because ballet, you know, ballet is a, is a completely different world um, on its own. Uh, but making the transition from deciding, okay, do I want to stay with ballet or do I want to move into musical theater? Because that's going to help me uh, kind of feed both both sides of my my creativity um it allows me to dance but it also allows me to act and it also allows me to uh to sing as well so it was kind of getting the best of of all of of those um departments um and and i made and i thought about it when i was in new york i got offered a job with the alvin ailey dance theater um when i was studying and that was something I really wanted to do. And when I got offered a job with their second company, the director said to me, I said, so can, will I still be able to, you know, audition for Broadway? And she's like, listen, once you join Ailey, it's a lifetime commitment. You know, that's what, that's what it, it's about. And I understood that. And I had to make a decision thinking, you know, do I follow this dream of being a, a, a dancer and especially with something like an Ailey company, or do I follow the musical theater side? And I chose to go down the route of musical theater and do Broadway and things like that. So it just made it very, uh, helped me make that decision that you could still dance and still have all and fulfill all those, those things that you want creatively by following this one path. And that's what I did. And so from that point on, I was like, this is great because I love being, love being on stage. I love performing. Uh, but I was getting to do it all in that one medium, you know, uh, yeah, kind of a catch all like a hundred percent. Yeah. You know, so it, it helped me, uh, it helped me grow in a lot of different ways, uh, that dance, like I said, you know, when I was studying ballet and dancing with the ballet companies, I did a company in Minnesota and the company, um, back in Ohio, it was, it's a completely different, it's a completely different discipline. You know, it's, it's harder. It's much more, uh, focused. You know, the style of it is, is very specific. You know, the technique behind it is very specific and you do have to commit the time to that. It is, a uh, 
it's, 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 it's an ongoing thing. You know, you're constantly taking classes, you know, uh, keeping your technique up, stretching and keeping yourself supple and, you know, and all of that. And, and it's wonderful, but it is, it, it, it's a grueling, uh, art form in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the passion of doing it overrides that because you know, what's required. It's like anything, you know, your whatever your profession is, whatever tools you need, that helps you do the best job possible, then that's what you have to keep, uh, keep up. You know, you always have to make sure that you are, uh, well hydrated. You have to make sure that your body's warm. You have to make sure you're doing the the proper stretches and exercises in order to do the choreography that's presented to you, you know? So it's, a it's definitely, uh, it was a, uh, a big learning thing for me. And I think it helped me in the future. You know, when when things came to do other stage work or film work, it's something about that discipline, about knowing your body that really that stays with me, you know, how Mm -hmm. you carry yourself and things like that. So for me, it it worked. It was like a, a a training ground for where I am today. In some ways, you know, it may work differently for other people, but certainly for me, I, I, I can certainly draw back on things of that that really helped me. Sure. I can definitely understand that. You talking about the physical demands of ballet and I've had some experience in theater. So I know that can be very physically demanding as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What would you say is the biggest difference to you between the two performance types? Uh, between working sort of in the dance world and in sort of screen work or? I would say dance and stage theater. Okay. Um, so for, for me, the, the difference in, obviously, if you're, the dancing side of things is completely different in one respect that I think you, you know, you, you learn a piece, you perform it on stage, you know, you, you interpret a story with your body through the, the movement of dance and and the music that's being played so you know most people will choreograph and there's some kind of story they want to tell and you have to interpret that purely through your body not with any vocal diet no dialogue no singing nothing you just have to your emotion comes from within through telling the story through your body whereas you know in stage and theater we have the luxury of of being able to speak or sing and, you know, with stage direction, tell the story that has been given to us in, in script form, you know, and how we choose to interpret a particular character is down to, to the actor and, you know, the director and what's the, or, or the writers and how they want this story to be conveyed, you know. Um, so there is, there is, there's a big difference, but at the same time, you are still performing live in front of an audience and you only have this one shot. You know, unlike TV and film where, you know, you can do other stuff. But, you know, you go out on the stage and if you mess up, you mess up and you have to be able to to carry on and 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 get yourself out of a predicament, whether that is you you miss a step or you forget a line or you forget the lyrics to a song. You know, you have to find a way to carry on because it the show doesn't stop unless it's an absolute, you know, an emergency, Does you know, or this absolutely, absolutely, you know. So you just have that that thing where the show must go on. It sounds cliche, yep. but it, but it, but that's it. The show must go on, regardless, you know. Absolutely. So and you so you kind of mentioned um, how again you have like takes when you're doing film and screen, right? 
would you say that's the biggest difference between stage and screen or what are the biggest differences between those two? Uh, the biggest differences I think is, is partly that is that, you know, like I said, you, when you're on stage performing, so whether that's in a play or a musical or whatever, you step out on set. Once the curtain goes up, that train leaves the station and it does not stop until that comes to a complete end, you know? So you don't have the opportunity to go, oh, let, let, yeah, that was, that was okay. Let me try that again. I think I can do that better. You know, you have a sick, whereas with stage, you usually have a, anywhere between a, sometimes I've done shows in two weeks time where we've put it up, uh, two to, two to six weeks rehearsal period where you learn everything. You learn your blocking, your, your staging, your, your music. If it's a musical, you learn, you know, uh, how you're you're going to work with other other actors or whatever the script is is calling for you know you have that time to learn all of that and it's a you know it's a ton of material to to take on and then once that it's time for you to perform it you have that one shot now granted most times you do a show i'd say we're we're doing eight shows professionally we do eight shows a week but mm -hmm. every night of doing a show or every performance is like doing it for the first time. One, because you have an audience who isn't, who hasn't seen it or maybe seeing it for the second or third time if they loved it that much. But you have to think that everyone out there watching it is seeing it for the first time. And every night that you go out there, you might be reciting the same show that you've done four shows prior, but it is doing it like it's new because these people who are seeing it now is seeing it for the first time. And the show that they're getting might be slightly different to the show you did the night before. Maybe your, you know, your emotion was slightly uh, more heightened on that particular performance, you know, but you get that one shot to do it and hopefully you get through it and there's no flubbing of lines or there's no, you know, technical hitches or anything like that. But with the screen, TV and film, you know, you learn your lines for that particular scene that's being shot that day mm -hmm. and you do it in blocks. You don't get to do beginning, middle and end. You just go in for that particular day. What scene am I working on? It, OK, it's going to be this scene with this particular actor. Uh, and it's, you know, it's three or four pages of dialogue or maybe sometimes just two pages of dialogue. And, you know, you can do it and you get the chance to 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 redo it again and again until everyone is happy pretty much with it, you know, and you get various options, uh, various uh, takes of it. And then at the end, it's going to be edited down in a way that you have no control over, mm -hmm. you know, that's going to be left to the, the editing department to put it mm -hmm. together, to make it come across it the way. And that, you know, and sometimes that can be several takes that you've done that they've spliced together to make a particular performance read. And it's still all you don't get me wrong. It is everything that you've done, but they've taken the, the best from every, take or sometimes mm -hmm. that one particular take will be what ends up on the screen you just you never really know but i think that's the big that's a big difference that's always been fascinating to me the the block scheduling of like screen stuff versus stage it, it almost feels like stages feels like a little bit more raw like yes yeah it, and it's harder i i would say it's harder to do because you you don't always know what's going to happen. And I say that because you also don't know what another actor is going to do. You know, it mm -hmm. might not be you who forgets a line. It might be the other actor on stage who forgets it. And you 
hopefully we'll be able to help them, <laughs> help them to recover, uh, you know, if you can, uh, you know, so it, it's little things like that. But you, I think you rely on each other as a, as a, as a whole, you know, as actors, you're in it together. You know, so if something does happen, you know, professionally, you want to be able to keep the show up and running and hopefully, you know, cover up any mistakes or anything that may have happened that the audience in some case would never know because they only know what's being put in front of them. You know, so if you forget a line or you skip over a passage of dialogue, if it just keeps going, the audience will be none the wiser. But if you if it turns out that you don't have the the creative tools to help you through something like that then it could possibly turn into a train wreck <laughs> you know what i mean so you just always want to be on the on the on the front foot i think because anything can happen mm-hmm. especially in live theater and maybe that's why i i do love it uh it's it scares me and terrifies me sometimes <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. it's all I, it's it's really where my root is in, in 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 theater that it's the majority of my work is has come from that and i love the the feel of of a live audience responding to the work that you are giving it's instantaneous whereas in tv and film you don't get that you 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 hope that what you've been able to do it will be conveyed in in the final product and that people will like it whereas we get instant gratification in theater in tv and film you don't get that right you and know. looking at your pretty story resume, theater and music seem to be a very big part of the early portion. Oh, yeah. And film and television were a later one. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious shift on your part to um, transition? I don't know if it was necessarily – I wouldn't say that it was a conscious decision. I think I went into – the arts, and when I say that I use all mediums, the, the singing, the dancing, the acting, the theater, the film, I went into it just wanting to perform. Uh, and things gradually sort of doors opened that I didn't necessarily see or aim for. My thing was I just wanted to be on stage and, and, and perform and sing and dance and act and do all those things. And although I thought of television when I was you know, in New York, uh, it was TV was all in, in California. And I thought, well, California is not where I want to be. I want to be in New York. I want to be on Broadway. I want to be doing all of these things. This is where the grit is. This is where it's all about. This is where artists strive, you know, um, and that and, and I felt that living in New York City. I felt like it was a, a constant grind, you know, and I loved it. It was what the arts was all about. It was, you know, whether they were, you know, I mingled with other ballet dancers and other actors on Broadway and, and our lives were exactly the same, even though we were working in different industries in some ways, but we understood what it was like to be in New York City, trying to live your life, doing what it is that you do. And it was, it was, it was gritty. It was everything you, you'd been told it was, you know, and it was about trying to make it. It was about trying to survive. Uh, and so I think that still stays with me, um, a lot, uh, just in terms of my work ethic. Uh, mm. you know, um, but yeah, I, I think that it is, uh, an amazing thing to be a part of when I think about where, where things have, how they've come from the early days to where, you know, my life is at the moment. Um, but it's definitely, uh, it's, it's been challenging and still challenging. 
and so so what um how did you get into screen so what was your first like step into that world so uh, that it happened very gradually i think it was little things i mean even from doing like extra work in in you know, short movies or short films, um, you know, in even so in New York, I was doing a little bit of extra work on some, some TV stuff, I think stuff that I would never, you know, you'd probably never see me in, but you know, you're just there and you're getting a sense of the cameras and the crew and the people around you. And I was thinking, God, this is kind of cool. Um, you know, but I didn't, once again, I didn't really shoot for that. I think it wasn't until I really moved uh, uh, to London where mm-hmm. I started to do a little bit more or certainly be uh, in, the, in, the, in the position to audition for stuff. Um, so it started to come around. Once I was still doing musicals, I think that sort of those opportunities started to arise, come through my agent saying, oh, they want to see you for this. Um, how's that? And I'm like, yeah, okay. So I'd learn the script and I'd go in and, you know, I'd get it or not get it. And, um, and I thought, oh, well, maybe this is something I really want to do. And I think it was, uh, I sat in on a table reading, uh, from a, for a big casting director in London, um, Lucinda Sison's. And I went in for uh, a table read. They just needed a reader is all they needed. And mm-hmm. I sat and I went for a table read. And it was this film called Gambit, which I did nothing in eventually except be like the part of this couple. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't given to me at that time. I was only gone in for a table read. I went in for this table read with um, uh, Alan Rickman, Cameron Diaz, Colin Firth, Sir Tom Courtney, um, and there were all these big people. And I sat in and I had several characters to read because I was just filling in. And we all sat around the table reading and I had all these different characters. And I sat and I was thinking, Jesus, I'm actually sitting here with all these amazing people who I know their work, you know, and I'm just here reading. But that's that's absolutely fine. And everyone came up to me afterwards saying, oh, my God, you were so funny. And it was great. And one of the producers said, oh, my God, we didn't really realize, you know, because they given me like three or four characters to read just to keep the story moving. But, you know, I decided I was going to come up with a different character for everybody, you know, just to mm-hmm. kind of bring something new. Uh, and everyone was so complimentary afterwards saying, you know, how funny this particular character was. You made me laugh. Oh, you really it's a shame you're not doing the movie. And I'm like. It is a shame. I really shouldn't be doing the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's funny because after that, the director, I think it was Michael Hoffman, who had asked, you know, would I be interested in doing a, a role in, in the movie? And I went back in for the casting work and put some stuff on tape. But it was really a non-dialogue role. And I was with a friend of mine, and there, we got hired to, to do this. But it was just interesting being on the set. And all and the scenes were with Colin Firth and Alan Rickman and Cameron Diaz. But, you know, we're just this couple in the hotel and, and everything. And I thought, this is cool. And everyone was so lovely. And I said, and I came back to my agent. I said, after that reading, I said, I, really, I want to do more. I really want to do more, you know. But I was an American also living in England. And there wasn't a great opportunity because – Unlike America, who opens its doors to a multitude of, of you know, uh, races and we've got people who can do everything over here. You know, in England, it's like, you know, if you weren't British or Caribbean or African or there wasn't a great deal of work 
as an American on television there. Mm-hmm. Some of the some of the films were okay because a lot of American companies would come and film in London. That was that was pretty pretty normal. But it wasn't enough to sustain me in in a living, you know, once in a while of trying to get onto, you know, uh, a TV show that happened to be filming there from America, but for the most part, I I think it, it was when I decided that I had to change my sights and and finally move from from London, which I never thought I did. And, you know, I spent so many years living and working in London. Um, and then to finally come to LA, you know, I was like, I'm just, you know what, if it's what I want to do, I'm going to have to make that transition and go where it's a, it's a going to be a much bigger pool, but the opportunity for me as an actor are going to be far greater, uh, to make, to make that move, you know? So I felt like I'd pretty much left an entire career behind and to come to LA you know, to start over again, basically, because no one knew me here. No one knew, you know, and, and LA is not a theater town, you know, it's, 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 we've heard that before. Oh my God. It's not a theater town at all. You know? So to come here expecting that is, was not the, the the thing to do. Um, if I went to theater, I'd go back to New York, you know? Um, but coming to LA was kind of like throwing my hat in the ring and seeing what, you know, what was going to stick basically. And, and I've been fortunate. I think things are just, are, are happening, and it's you know there's a little bit of a, a, a simmer going on, and I'm, I'm happy with that. And I'm you know things are moving along gradually, and you know I, London is always there. I still go back to work. I'm still working on projects that I deal with back in London, so I'm back and forth a lot. So I feel like now I've I've kind of broadened everything, and I have a bigger pool to work within, um, and so that's good. So that's very good. I actually think it's really funny because I was when I was doing research for the interview, mm-hmm. um, I was seeing some of the stuff that you were in, and um, I realized that my little cousin who lives out there uh, w- used to watch Go Jetters all the time. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is really phenomenal. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's hysterical! That's hysterical. I'm very proud of this show. I'm yeah. so proud of it. Yeah, so, I mean, like so she. So she. <laughs> Oh, is she, is she an Ubercorn fan then? Oh yes, oh yes. <laughs> I um, it, you know, and it's it's crazy because when I when I left England um, to move to LA, that job possibility came up just as I was moving. I was in the process of actually moving, and I said to my agent, I said, "Why am I going in for this?" I said, "Because you know, I'm moving to LA. If this happens, that means you know, how's that going to happen? Oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Just go in, have a bit of fun, and and I love the character that for it. And I went into this audition. I uh, it was one of the uh, voiceover auditions I'd gone into, and I'd gotten. They came down and got me. I went up. They walked me into the booth, and through this through the window, there was at least probably 15 people in the, in there listening to me. And at the end of my audition, I got the biggest round of applause. Uh, and I thought this, that's never happened to me before. And I thought, well, that was great. I don't know what's going to happen because, you know, sometimes you always get great feedback after a show, after an audition and you still never get the job. That's just what mm-hmm. happens. Um, but I moved to LA and I think maybe a week and a half, maybe two weeks I'd been here, and I get a comment from my agent saying, so listen, it's 99.9% sure they want you to be Ubercorn in this new animation. And I was like, you're joking. And so we crossed yeah. the bridge, and, and eventually I was able to do it, and I was flying back and forth from L.A. to London to record all of it. And it turned out to be amazing. It is one of the, the best things I've done, and I'm so proud of this little character because, you know, it's a preschool animation, but... 
it made such an impact on on parents and their kids because it, it's very educational. But also, mm-hmm. they incorporate this all this whole disco theme, you know. So I couldn't be prouder to be the funkiest disco loving <laughs> geographical guide <laughs> ever. It, it couldn't have been more up my street. I absolutely love him. I love the character. I love what he stands for uh, and everything. And with a little, who doesn't want a bit of disco thrown in on the side? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, he's, he's wearing a 70s jumpsuit. He's got a, a purple mane with glittery red hooves and he wears goggles and he's a DJ. Uh, you know, it's just, who thinks of that? <laughs> you know, who comes up with that? And I I think the kids love him and, you know, the parents love him. I think he's now, it's the Gojettis is now shown quite a lot around the world and it's here in the u.s now as well which we're really happy about on universal kids uh and everything so oh that's cool yeah he's making his way around he's making his way around (laughs) (laughs) so very the funkiest unicorn in all the land um you uh we mentioned a little bit earlier too you you did some music you you have musical credits to your name um, i do <laughs> uh, a lot of, so it's some there's some pop in there there's some funk in there but i think primarily what you've done is kind of like an electronic like yeah it's that that sort of dance uh yeah you're that euro dance feel yeah. stuff um you know that that sort of came about when i when i was working in germany so i i moved away from new york to go do um cats in germany um, at the time, that was what, uh, you know, every singer dancer wanted to do that musical. And I was on a waiting list for Cats Broadway at the time. And I'd gone down down the street to 72nd, West 72nd Street Studios was holding auditions for another production of Cats that was being done. You know, it was the same sort of uh, creative team, basically, but they were mounting a production or they were recasting for production that was in Hamburg, Germany. Long story short, I got this gig. I went to Germany. Uh, I loved loved it. I was very happy to be a part of the show. And eventually, a friend of mine who said she was she was doing some backing singing uh, and asked if I wanted to do some backing vocals on 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 an artist in Germany. And I went in. I started doing some vocals and stuff, and it was kind of fun. And the one of the producers said, "I really like the sound of your voice. Would you be interested in doing like a demo for me?" So I was like, yeah, 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 no problem. So we did this demo of some song. I can't remember what it was. And anyway, so he said, I've got another project and I want to try and get this, get a deal signed. So at at that time, they were doing what they called sort of CD singles or maxi singles. So they only released the singles. You never did like an album uh, Mm -hmm. or whatever. So I did a a few of those singles. Uh, Anyway, I got this deal. Uh, and he got me onto Polydor and eventually another song came out and we were onto BMG, RCA, uh, working on different, different things. And one song just happened to go to number one, which was so unexpected. And it was a song called Let Me Be Your Love. And it was a, a dance track. Uh, and it was done with an Italian. Uh, team as well and then in Spain I think it hits like six weeks it was like number one in Spain or something like that and you know I think people are slowly making the connection I don't even know if the Death Stranding 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fans have made that connection yet that there's Tommy because Tommy Earl Jenkins is what I go by, but Tommy mm-hmm. Jenkins was the was what all that was listed under. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how all that that sort of uh, comes out in the wash <laughs> when people realize it'll that shake out it'll shake out eventually. Exactly, exactly. But you know, I I loved it and it was great and I had never experienced. I mean, I didn't realize I went to Spain. This is crazy. Um, so my real experience and sort of that quote unquote pop star kind of thing Mm -hmm. uh i went to spain because they had offered me to come and do a a performance on part of like a a bill it's like you know those concerts like the radio stations will sponsor a concert and every artist goes and you know they're on the bill and it's like a party in the park and there's thousands and thousands of people and i went and i they picked me up from the airport and they were very excited and the team and they said, you know, we're very excited. This is the concert's going to be great. And I think you're you're the the last you're on the 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 last one to close the concert and everything. And I was like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. Um, and said the, the song was doing really well. Well, the countdown, the radio countdown was on the radio as we were driving from the airport. And my song came on being announced as number one as I was driving from the airport to the hotel and i was like you have got to be kidding this who does this happen to aside from you know major artists and i'm like this was my first big foray into into this sort of whole thing going to do this concert it's like and numero uno with tommy jenkins and let me be your love i'm like this is so crazy i'm actually (laughs) in the car as the countdown was they gotten to that point and so i went and we'd done these the the concerts and they said to me they said you know can you Maybe when you go out, can you just sing a little bit? You know, we'll do some playback. We'll have some dancers and stuff. And, you know, maybe sing a little bit acapella so they know that it's you. And and I was like, yeah, yeah, well, sure. You know, and I didn't realize how many. There's like 20,000 people. For me, that was like the biggest audience I'd ever had in my life. Um, you know, and it was crazy. And I went out and I said, you know, I sang a bit of the song. You know, don't let me, don't let me go one more time. Don't let me blow out. And everyone just shouted, let me be your love. And I was like, that is crazy that they knew the song. And for me, it was like this wall of sound that came back at me that they echoed the chorus of the song. And I was like, and then the music kicks in. I was like, oh, hell, let's just get, let's party, man. This is crazy, (laughs) you know? And it was, it was, it was an amazing time to experience that just to get a sense of uh how big that is or how big that was potentially could be um you know and i i enjoyed that ride and i still love doing music um but i'm at the at the point where now i'd like to do the music i want to do if i was to Mm -hmm. do something you know um and that was i think at the time it was you just did what the record label wanted and for me it was new and it was different i was like yeah this is fun you know um, it wasn't necessarily my bread and butter because at the same time I was doing that, that, that actually happened. Um, I had moved to London at this point and that was still kind of going on, but I was actually doing cats in London, uh, funny enough, uh, where it all began, uh, when I was, when that, uh, that concert came up that I flew to Spain for that, um, you know, it was amazing. It was great. I had such a such a great time, and uh, I'm glad that it sort of d- did what it did, and it gave me an insight to that world a bit, which is also very different. So, you know, that's why I always feel like I'm, I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, where I've kind of I t- I pretty much have touched on everything in the industry to some degree, and mm-hmm. just finding out where I sit, where I fit, you know, where my niche is. 
but yeah, I, I loved it. I bet, you know, it, it's a, it's a, once again, it's another, it's a completely different medium, you know, the, the music world. Oh yeah. As a musician myself, I'm really interested to hear about some of the sounds and style that influenced other artists. Uh-huh. It, were there any of those for you? Um, in terms of people that influenced me, you know, I, I grew up sort of singing, you know, I grew up in the church and, and all that stuff, you know, to the sort of age old story with a lot of, of people. Um, but, you know, my taste in music is very eclectic. I love country music. I love R&B. I love a bit of hip hop. I love, you know, Euro pop. I love, I pretty much love it all. You know, my collection of music just varies. There's not one style that I listen to because I feel like you don't, you know, there's a lot to be learned and a lot to just absorb from so many different type of artists and to figure out what it is that really moves you and certain music move, moves me in more ways than others. Um, at, you know, I love, uh, I love panic at the disco at the moment. I love this. Oh, <laughs> I'm, that is my man. favorite band. I am so into them at the moment. Uh, I love the, I love what's going on and I love the guys. I love his style his voice. I love the, you know, some of the, just the, the lyrics and the storytelling that they do. Um, but I still love, you know, a bit of R and B and a little bit of, um, uh, gospel music as well. Um, and I'm still in, you know, there's a lot of stuff still happening in musical theater. There's some, some shows that are coming out. There's the one or two songs from certain shows that are like, Oh, that's a really cool song. That's really mm-hmm. great. You know? Um, so my, like I said, I, I love music and I love, uh, various types of it. And I'm always, always listening, you know? Yeah. That's how I feel as well. And as a musician for yourself, do you have a certain style for yourself that you you follow? So or? I'm I'm just a bass player. Okay, not but just I'm really a drawn bass player. Yeah. Not just a bass player. The bass player holds everything, man. Everyone, yeah. everyone loves a good bass line. That's that's a oh, serious yeah. position. That's a serious. If I'm position. doing my job well. Everybody else looks good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Because you know it's all about that bass. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> but uh, part of what I liked about being a musician was getting to tour. And you mentioned you were Europop based in like kind of Germany, also in Spain. So did you spend a lot of time performing live in Europe? Um well, in term not in not in the in the music sense, I think most of my you know I did the odd little uh, live performance when it came to promoting the the record or something that I was doing. Um, so not a great deal in that sense, but a lot of work uh, in in theater and stuff. I've I've kind of traveled a lot a lot more doing that. Okay, yeah, yeah. What was it like performing in in Europe? after the fall of the Berlin wall, like as an American. Oh my, you know, that was, I didn't realize how major it was until I was there experiencing that. I just happened, you know, I left New York. First of all, let me just be clear. I loved New York with my very being. And I never thought I'd worked so hard to get to New York. uh, 
that I never thought, why would I ever leave New York? Everything I want is here. You know, you want for nothing in New York. New York is a city. It's like, to me at the time in my life, it was like, it was the central, you know, place for everything that everything revolved around New York for me. But when I moved to Europe, you know, I had no, I was still young in the, in, in my in my being that I kind of thought, God, I'm going to Germany and I have no idea what it's about, what it's like. My only memory of it is what I'd read in history books thinking, you know, you know, uh, as Americans, we don't venture outside of America very much, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I had no idea about what I was in for, you know, but then I was realizing that, you know, Hamburg was a very cosmopolitan city. It was amazing. And you know, um, I was expecting to go and see bombed out buildings and things like that. And I get that. I'm like, this is incredible. This is amazing. Um, you know, so I was there in November when the wall came down, I was performing cats at that time in Germany, which was also all done in German. So I had to learn, learn the show in German, (laughs) um, (laughs) phonetically. And, uh, and during that time it, it, it happened and it was the city because I happened to be in in on the in the West, that wall came down in Berlin, and it was amazing to see how many people flooded from the East straight into the West. I mean, they were welcomed. I mean, you'd see they they drove these really tiny cars. It was amazing. I don't know how people fit in them. They were so small, <laughs> um, you know. But people would throw flowers at their cars because they 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 were easily recognizable from being from the East, you know. So people would leave, you know cuddly toys or stuffed animals or flowers or, you know, uh, gifts on their cars and stuff, welcoming them, uh, to the West. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. And that went on for quite some time. Uh, but the difference between seeing, uh, when I went to Berlin to see, you know, where the wall is and was, uh, where it stood and, to be able to see both sides, the west side of Berlin and the east side, it was like driving from Technicolor to black and white. And that's the only way for, I can describe it to you. Wow. Because that the, the east side literally was so gray and so grim and so monochrome that it was literally like you'd been transitioned from, you know, uh, it's like Dorothy when you watch The Wizard of Oz and she opens the door. You've gone from black and white into this amazing color. And that was, it was crazy. It was crazy. But you just realized how how sort of uh, downtrodden it, it seemed for for all of that time. And the fact that, you know, these people weren't allowed to leave, you know. And I uh, I got a piece of the wall and you know a little bit of that history and it's amazing thing i think not long long ago i think this past november was it 30 years i think it was something like that yeah yeah that it was celebrated um and i do and i remember being there at that time and it was it was it was crazy but at the same time it there was this huge emotion involved with it and i just felt like it was amazing to be a part of this historical moment although i wasn't directly connected to it it was just being in that surrounding at that yeah, time. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I realized how major it was uh, until I was in it, you know, tear down the wall, let the color flow in. I'm telling you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've got one more question for you before we move into death stranding stuff, because this was a, this is a fun credit that I saw. Um, we're, we're a couple, we're a couple hip hip heads here on middle gear Mondays. Um, 
And I think one of our favorite credits that you have is that you did staging and choreography for a couple Dougie Fresh music. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) What was that like? (laughs) Oh my God. That was still in my New York days. I I remember it. And it's funny because Dougie Fresh at the time was, he was big, but I think he was still rising. It was Dougie Fresh and the Get Fresh crew. Uh, and his album, I think it was The Greatest Entertainer, and there were two songs on it. I think it was Cut That Zero and a song called D.E.F. And those two, I was doing a production of Dreamgirls at the time, and one of the girls in the show was his cousin. And she said, and I was the sort of dance captain on this show as well at the time that I was doing it. And she said, my cousin, you know, is looking for someone to sort of help, you know, maybe give him some help him with some moves and do some staging. And at that, at that point, he didn't really have a choreographer or anything. I don't think like that. Um, but he also wanted to just kind of get in a studio and, you know, and stretch and, and kind of get in touch with his body, I suppose. And I said, well, you know, my, my background isn't really, isn't hip hop. You know, I'm, I'm coming from that sort of classical ballet and jazz contemporary background. Um, and she said, yeah, but that's what he wants. He wants to kind of get used to, you know, finding his, his, his body and the discipline of all that sort of stuff, something that was out of his comfort zone. You know, and he bought a pair of jazz shoes and everything. And we went and we went into the studio and, you know, I would take him through like a warm up and stuff like that. And then we'd work on little movements, not, you know, necessarily just little things that maybe he could, you know, we'd, we'd find a, like a really cool move for him to do that he could insert at some point because he was already a, a really cool mover. But he and he had his own style, but we'd find little choreographic things to to slot in that maybe he could throw that move in every now and again or something or whatever. Um, and it was, it became a sort of like a, a once a week or every two weeks we'd kind of get together and spend an hour or so together in the studio and, and all that. And he was really cool. We go up to Harlem, which is where he was living. And, uh, and so he had two videos that he was going to do. And I think we tried to do them all in over the course of two days, like knock them out. Um, and so basically it, it was all, he had a director, but I was there for him to sort of, he'd have a moment where he's going, walking through something in the, in the story. And I'd say, maybe try this particular move on that. So I kind of helped stage a lot of stuff. And there was, you know, there's a couple of backup dancers who had some stuff that we'd also try and throw in a couple of moves. So it was fun. It was it was really cool, and you know we we did that. I stayed with him for a while, and even at the I'd done a thing with him at the Apollo Theater, uh, and went and just checked on him, you know, just to kind of work on little things, and it was good. It was it was really good until I obviously I moved away um, yep. to to Europe, but yeah, that was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and he's and he's still going. He's massive, you know. He's a beatboxer, man. He still got his thing going. Yeah, yeah. Sam, we want you to go west and finish what Emily started. The people she left behind have been hard at work setting up Cairo network terminals, but these terminals are still isolated. We need you to bring them online. Death Stranding. A raison d'être. Yeah, it's this whole this whole experience that is Death Stranding. Yeah. Um, we've, been, we've been fans of uh, Hideo Kojima's work from the way back right so when he announced this uh several years ago this game yeah it was such an intriguing sounding concept right um how did you find out about death stranding and what drew you into doing the project okay so i literally um found out about the the whole project um through my agent 
and they contacted me. Uh, they obviously, the team had reached out to my agent saying they were looking for a particular character and they had a breakdown about him and everything. And, and it was slightly different to what I was in terms of the breakdown for him. Um, but for the most part, it was, it was, it was pretty close, just some physical attributes that were slightly different. Um, but they, they sent through a script and at the time he was just called, it was just, the character was just, it was just, uh, labeled as commander. That was it. There was nothing, nothing more about him. Um, uh, and they sent the script through and I had to put it on, it sent through two scenes, I believe it was, and I had to do a self tape. So I literally had to, you know, get my set up and do the scenes and interpret it, you know, because there wasn't much uh, background on him. I interpreted the way I, I read it off the page. So basically my, my interpretation of, of the character. Um, and that's, that's how I came, became on board. But it, it went a while before they came back to me. I think it might have been like a month or so before I even heard back. So I'm, I practically dismissed it. I'm always doing so many auditions or self-tapes that it was just one that just kind of came in. I did it, sent it through, and I'll just wait. If I hear back, I hear back. If I don't, I don't. Mm-hmm. And they came back, and I was like, because it was so long coming back, when it came back, I was kind of like, wow, I didn't expect to, to hear back from that um, just because I dismissed it. It had been so long. Um, anyway, they came back, and uh, I accepted the offer and everything. And I didn't – I knew and I'd heard of Metal Gear. So here's the thing. I'm not a gamer, right? But I do a lot of work for games um, and I enjoy playing them. But Metal Gear, I had heard of, but the, na- the name Kojima, I hadn't really been uh, associated with uh, in terms that I didn't, I wasn't, uh, knew his work very well, but I knew, I knew Metal Gear. And then when someone said, oh, he's, 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 you know, did all of the Metal Gear stuff or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't feel like the pressure of I was going in to work with some god <laughs> in, <laughs> in terms of which was which probably served me very well um, because I didn't I'm I'm very happy that I you know I I knew who he was after after the fact or you know and kind of became a lot more aware of like ah now I get it okay now I see but by this point I think my work had already been you know, in process before I was able to kind of realize the the magnitude of this person that I was working with, who for all intents and purposes was a wonderful person and easy to work with and, and all of that. Um, so that's how it came about. Literally, I got the audition, I self-taped, they offered it and I started work whatever the day was that came through. And they, you know, eventually sent me my scripts and what was going to happen. And, and I was excited because I had never done motion capture before either mm-hmm. you know mentioning like working with hideo was a great experience mm. can you give us some more detail about that um, like were, were you in the room with him oh, when you were acting yes absolutely i every session that i did he was when it came to all the motion capture stuff all the sound stage stuff he was always there uh directing the scenes and and you know talking us through i'd see i saw him you know, it was like seeing a friend every day when I would go in. Um, and it was wonderful working with him because he's incredibly passionate about what he does. 
So therefore you feel impassioned by it. Yes. That makes sense. You know, um, you know, so you, but also you have to remember you are telling the story of someone who has come up with this incredible story, these incredible characters, and you have to bring it to life. It's entirely up to you. Uh, so you don't want to, you know, you don't want to be going down the wrong path, but you know, he was there and because he doesn't speak English very well, he probably speaks a little, but, um, for the most part, he has a translator who translates everything, you know, but it was interesting because I had never worked like that before. I'd never worked in a situation where I was working with a director who I wasn't able to communicate with in, in, in my native tongue. Uh, so what was wonderful about it was that I instantly, he, I can read him in his eyes and his passion and his facial expression. So when the, the interpreter is talking and relaying, I'm not looking necessarily at the interpreter, but I'm looking at him as if he is saying it, if that makes sense. So I feel like I'm connected to him, but I'm hearing it. And even though he's speaking in Japanese, I'm hearing the translation, but I'm still focused on him. Um, and that was, that was, it was wonderful to be able to do that and know that you're, you know, you're getting the thumbs up from him or whatever it was, you know, um, but he was there every day. Uh, he would talk us through, we'd see the storyboard, I'd see the character, what it, what the character was supposed to look like. And, you know, and it, and it helped a great deal to know that I was on on the right track. And every day, you know, if I had questions, I knew that I could ask the questions. If I didn't understand something, it would, it would get explained to me, you know, but it was amazing working with him. Uh, and I feel absolutely honored to have been able to share that space and to be able to work so closely with him in bringing Die Hardman to, to life, uh, and in the way that he had envisaged it, you know, so that way, you know, I felt absolutely honored by that. Aside from the language thing, did it working with him differ any significantly from working with like a screen director, like a film director? Um, not, not really. I think in some ways I felt like I had more contact with him because of it being his story and trying to, to make sure that that character was right for him. I felt like there was a lot of dialogue between us. Sometimes on, on film sets, you, a director can just leave you to your own devices and just make sure that it's coming across on screen and, and let you do what you do as the actor. Not every director is like that, but I just felt like there was much more, uh, contact in a way of, speaking and uh making sure we're on the same page making sure that i'm i'm giving him what he wants because it is his vision do you know what i mean versus i suppose getting a script and a director directing what the script is uh from another writer you know whereas here i'm working with him as the writer and the director so it's all his versus a director who's just directing someone else's writing, you know? So it, it was a little bit different, but, uh, you know, in, in some ways it was similar, but I felt like there was a little bit more involved in this particular process because also uh, it's, you're working completely different. It's not like being on a movie set, you know, you have to bring, dig, dig a little deeper, I think with, with this project that we were working on. Oh yeah. Um, He's Kojima has done interviews um, and has kind of mentioned that he hopes that 
as people live their lives outside of the game in the months and years following that he hopes they find the meaning of Death Stranding. Mm -hmm. So having been in the trenches, so to speak, do you feel you understand the meaning behind Death Stranding? Uh, Yes, I understand it. I understand the meaning behind it and I understand what it is you know, he was trying to convey, I believe, with, you know, the whole strand and the connections of, of you know, trying to connect our world again. I think it's very poignant. I think it's very uh, current in, in, our, in our climate, in, in the world in which we live in at the moment. And I think his hope and his idea was that people would connect more. And I think that's what the game has done. I mean, you've played the game, you can see how that happens, you know, where you're also able to see what other people have left behind in, in the game and, you know, little signposts that they may have left, you know, and, or giving you likes and things like that. And it's, it is a, a way that, you know, you feel like you do connect with, with people in, in a way that you probably haven't connected in any other games before. You know, it is kind of a working together situation. I mean, you can choose to work as closely with or as little I suppose, as you know, with other people when you're playing this particular game, but even outside of it, I th- I'd hope that it, it helps people. Um, even if it's just a small percentage, there were people, you know, think about what they did in the game or what the game represents and to maybe carry something into your everyday life. Even if it's just for a moment that you kind of have that little bit of a connection with someone. I think it's something that we've completely lost in our world at the moment, but hopefully we can regain that in some form. And I think this is, you know, it's a way, it's a great, it's certainly, it was certainly a great way to reach the masses by, by, by creating something like this in an interactive video game, uh, where, you know, you can, you can reach so many millions of people and, 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 and very quickly by doing something like that. Yeah, he, he had a very good vision for that kind of theming. Um, having worked with him and seeing his vision and things like that, do you think he would make a good transition to a, a film director? Oh, yeah, I think ab- absolutely. I think, he, I think he directs in that way. I think his, you know, and he's got such a, a, an incredible mind, you know, to, to come up with, with a story as, you know, complicated. It's so complex, Death Stranding. It took it took a while for me to get my head around it because, you know, we were fed information bits at a time. I never got the full story from beginning to end, you know, and, and, and because there's so much that happens in between that story, you know, and everyone else's connection within the story, you know, so I needed to concentrate on my own stuff uh, and the people that I was working with, but then I'd find that I could learn more about other characters and stuff as well as time went on. You know, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 I think he'd make an incredible, uh, film director. Uh, and I think he'd do very well with, with his stories. And and I think he just has a mind that, that is so out there that it would be stuff that we would never even imagine. You never know what you're going to get from him, you know? Very eclectic. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tommy, you've had a few credits in video games with series like Fallout, mm-hmm. World of Warcraft, Guild Wars, all on your belt. Mm. But Death Stranding was the first time doing motion capture. Correct. So, how do you feel about adding that extra layer? Does it change your process at all? 
Um, does it differ from like doing like screen film or theater? Um, I, th- I think I would say that the motion capture for me was, was closer to doing theater in a way uh, than it is f- for, for screen. And there, there are elements of both. What I did find was that it was compared to, you know, with a lot of the voice work that I've done for other video games in the past and things like that, you know, you, you get your script, you go into a booth and you, you do the stuff and, you know, and you, you play around with some things and create this character, but you have no, no idea how, what it's necessarily going to, to be like. You don't necessarily have a visual to work with. You're just working off what the director is giving you and you, you know, that's the, you know, that's the character that they want. Um, whereas something like motion capture, when it comes to filming things like cutscenes and that you, you know, that it's going to be, uh, in, in some cases it, it could very well be your likeness, or it could be just a character that you're doing motion capture for. That could be an alien of, or some, or some creature or something like that, but they want your body movement. Um, you know, but with this, it was, it did add a, a, a layer because for me it was, it was working knowing that my likeness was going to be uh, attached to this, but at the same time, it was also uh, a medium that I, I hadn't worked in before, and I was excited about that. But at the same time, I had to dig a lot deeper than I had previously in you know in some other film work or TV work uh, because I didn't have everything around me. I had to really dig harder with my imagination to imagine certain elements around me. You know, you'd have a few props and things that you could use, but it wouldn't be like filming uh, on a film set, you know? So, but you have to still create and work as an actor the same way and approach the script the same way you would do anything else, which is what I always try to do. I always try to approach things from the truth perspective of the script in order to make it live as realistically as possible. And I think that's what I always try to do. Um, and I think it's the best place to look at it, no matter if it's fantasy or science fiction or horror. I think the only way to do anything is to try and approach it from the truth perspective from the dialogue. Do you know what I mean? Um, And because that's what you want, no matter what you see, you want everything to be as real as possible, you know, but take into consideration what the character is and how that character, what characteristics that particular character has and try and incorporate that as well. So there's a lot of things to take on. So it was untraditional in that sense. um, Yeah. Were you working in the motion capture studio with the other actors? Uh, Yes. Yeah. So all, all the scenes that I would have either with Mad, you know, and the majority of my stuff was with Mads or with Norman. And uh, in every all of my uh, dialogue stuff with them is was done. All of our cut scenes were done together. Um, what is the setup and process for mocap like? So you record your lines while you're doing it, right? Yeah. So it, it would literally be, you know, obviously, you know, you have the setup, the suit that you wear, you've got the dots on your face, you've got the helmet with the camera and the microphones and all of that sort of stuff. And so you, you know, we'd go on the soundstage and for whatever scene we were working on, we'd block the scene out. You know, they would say, I need you to go here at this point and then maybe grab his hand on this point. However you feel certain things would work as you as the actor. He gave us room to also experiment with it physically for how it was going to work for us. And we, you know, as the actor can work things out for ourselves as well. Um, 
you know, but that was, that was, that was the process going on to that, you know, working with little or nothing in terms of the physical, uh, props and things like that. You'd have, you know, if you had a, a, a gun, you know, you'd have some, a, a plastic thing that represented the gun. And it, sometimes it would be in the shape of a gun or, you know, if you're on a, on a vehicle or anything like that, they'd create something in the semblance of that. Um, you know, so you were always, it was very unconventional in terms of working on a film set, like I said, or TV set. Whereas in this prospect, you are working purely with, uh, nothing around you necessarily in terms of, of that, you know, using your imagination even more. Um, but it, it was, it was definitely a challenge and it was definitely something that I would gladly welcome again, uh, doing motion capture. I thought it was just amazing. And also I think as an, as an actor, it, it made me, uh, in some ways work a little harder. Cause you like having that challenge, right? I, I do. I do. Um, I, I think when I have the, when I have that, that thing that I kind of fear, everyone's just said, you know, if you, if it's something that you fear, go for it because that's, what's going to make things come out of you. You're going to dig a little deeper about certain things, things that fear, you, you know, uh, if it's a particular scene or anything like that, you, it does make you go, I need to conquer this because I need to, as the actor, tell this story and I need to tell it in the best possible way that I can, you know? Um, and so you, so you obviously had a lot of lines in the game that were not accompanied by mocap, but for the motion capture stuff, did you spend any additional time in the booth doing ADR for that at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes you would, you know, if something got, uh, maybe got a little muffled or, you know, the, the camera got, the mic got a little scratch sound on it, you might go in and have to record something like that. But that was, that was very rare on my part. Um, and I did go into the booth to do, uh, you know, I'd still wear the helmet and a, and a, and a camera on for doing in game stuff. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so that was, that was, the, and that was, that was pretty easy. Cause that's, you know, my character does have, you know, diary at the mouth in this game. He literally is talking, you know, nonstop. <laughs> I literally, cause I've been playing the game and I, I may, I think I tweeted something the other day about playing the game and listening to myself talk. And I was like, even at one point I wanted to tell Die Hardman to shut up because I was like, dude, let me just, let me just figure this out. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> And that was pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. <laughs> well, it was said that Die Hardman had the second amount of uh, highest number of lines. Dialogue, yeah. Out of all all the game's characters. Yes. So how long did you spend recording? Um, my journey with the, with the whole process was, I, it was over a year. You know, it wasn't, you know, because I wasn't in every single day. It was a process that took place over the year because of, you know, how the gaming thing works. It's a it's a long process, you know, uh, and I would have, you know, two weeks in, you know, then I'd have, you know, have a you know a month or two off and I'd go back and I'd do something else in the studio. And they were usually, you know, sessions. So for me, it I don't know how many hours I racked up on it. But overall, it was it, the work on it went over a year. Wow! Yeah, 
off and on. That's crazy. You know, that's crazy. and that mean that means that's I, you know, insane. I could have had you know two or three months where I didn't do anything, and then I get called back in for something. Do you know what I mean? So it it mm-hmm. it just it just went on for a while. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so you have all these, all these lines and all this motion capture done, right? Um, so without going too deep into it, because it is such like a special scene, we had a lot of praise to lay on your performance and there was a very specific one towards the end of the game in episode 14. Right. Um, we credited on our episode when we talked about it as I think probably one of the best performances and performance captures we've seen in a long time. Wow. Um, (laughs) Wow. It was so like, it was so emotional and um, powerful of a scene. Thank you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Um, What kind of preparation do you do for a scene like that? Man, I'll tell you. So this, when I got the script for that, and saw the the storyboard for it as well. I thought, okay, this is this is a really powerful scene. Now it can it can go one of two ways. You can just kind of do it, or you can really dig deep and find it. And I had to think about the history of, you know, what had been told to me, what what happened, you know, with Cliff and I prior, and blah 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 blah. And so all of these things, you know, the whole story leads up. To this point, and I think it's such a 360 for this character um, mm-hmm. at the, at this point that there was no way I wanted to do it so much justice that I, I I did have that fear factor, you know, when I said you know about you know if you find things that that you fear, really dig deep and go and go for it because there's something to come out of that that will make you stronger or that will make you tap into something that you hadn't tapped into before. Um, you know, and that's what it did. And my preparation for that was I knew the day that it was going to happen. Um, and it was a long day. Uh, and I think that we, um, left it to the end of the day. If I remember correctly, I think it was, um, anyway, when I knew that we were going to do it, I had to take a moment and Norman was with me that day. And I, before we started to shoot it, I was going through it myself and I took myself to a corner and I just kind of went through it all in my head more about the, the, the journey of the, of this particular monologue and where it needed to go. So I had to really think about the beginning, the middle and the end of it. And how, how do I build the emotion through this and what, what stays with me? Is there elements of anger is there elements of love there's elements of hatred there's elements of you know uh uh vulnerability uh all of these things because he, he starts to seem very upright like he typically oh yes and then it just... yes yeah and i think i think for him it becomes so personal that he is relaying this message to to Sam and the story that he is trying to say for the first time i think he is letting something out because he one he knows who he's talking to mm-hmm. um and the history of what he has been through and and you know and also how people have perceived him you know up to this point uh and i think he's just finding a moment that this is you know, everything has changed. Uh, 
you know, without trying, without giving anything away, you, you know, he's had a speech prior to that, mm-hmm. uh, of where, of what he has, what his, what he's become and what he's taking over at this stage. Um, you know, uh, and so it was by far the hardest scene I've ever had to do, but it's also by far one of the proudest things I've done because I know what it took to get there. And I know how, how present Norman was for me at that point. And when we did it, I, I remember doing it and everything, it, it became something more than I imagined it to be because in the moment, something came over me that I could not control. And all I needed to do was stay with it and keep going, delivering my dialogue and just let whatever emotions I was feeling at that time let that come to the surface. And what I tried not to do was stop myself from going too far. I thought, listen, if it goes where it goes, let's just see what happens. And um, I'm not going to stop myself from feeling a certain moment because at this, at this point, I'm telling you what this character is exuding from himself, you know, and trying to, to explain a situation and what, and what he feels. And so I just let myself go. Um, and it was liberating. It was scary. I remember at the end of it, um, shaking uncontrollably, uh, after it. Uh, and I just needed to take myself away because we did, it went in one take. It all happened in one take. Yeah. We all happened in one take and we only did a second take because of safe safety in case for any reason when they played back there was you know a sound issue or there was something else or you know anything that might have you know was gone wrong we did the second take and and the exact same thing happened the only thing that i remember happening in the second take once is that i think norman's uh our headgear got locked and my helmet sort of came off I remember, remember that, but it didn't stop the scene. The scenes kept going. Uh, we didn't stop and we just kind of, you know, he was there to, to assist and we just kept everything going. But the scene, when I, after seeing the, the, the cut scene, I think some people have posted it online and, and I watched it and I remember distinctly thinking it would, it was one, one scene all the way through one scene we did, uh, and I and I, I couldn't imagine splitting it up or cutting it or anything like that. It was just I just think it needed to be if you can get it. And there was no pressure on me to do it. I think even the dialogue that came from it, you know, a, I think there are moments where there may have been an improvised moment, but I can't remember. I just know that the story was what it was and the story had to be told. And emotionally, it went where it went but yeah it was uh by the end of that day i think i got in the car and i rolled the windows down and i had the music <laughs> blaring up and i was just i was on the freeway heading back to la and because it was down in in uh, marina del rey i got on the 405 coming back and i was just like let the wind blow through the car let the music play <laughs> shake it all off because i literally and it stayed with me for hours after that it did. It stayed with me for hours after that because I came home thinking, I don't know what just happened to me, but I felt like I'd been in a therapy session, you know, or something. And that I was just literally spilling out my guts uh, for, you know, trying to, to, 
to tell a story, you know? Um, so yeah, it was, it was incredibly challenging. It sounds like you spent a lot of time with the character, Die Hardman, like building this character from your perspective. Yes. Do you see a little bit of yourself in Die Hardman? Or do you find it easy to divorce yourself from characters when you finish the day? Um, to some of them, I, I do. But I think, I think what it is, I think I always find an element of myself that is connected to a character that I am playing. Only because I think trying to bring elements of myself to a character makes it more real to me rather than being someone that is completely far removed from me. Now, Di Harmon is not a character that I say I'm remotely close to. There are elements about him. I feel like I'm a very organized person. I think he is a very organized and diligent person. Um, but I have, I have a much bigger fun factor to me than I think he does. Um, you know, um, but there is also the discipline within me that I understand that I can draw from that. I think he has, uh, I think he's a no nonsense person. And I am very much like that. I'm pretty black and white uh, when it comes to, to life in general and dealing with situations. It's, it's either this way or it's that way. I, I don't think there's – I try not to have any gray uh, area. Um, but I think, you know, there's elements of him that are, you know, are very vulnerable that we get to see. Uh, and I think it's – it's also who, who I am. I, I'm a, I'm a very compassionate person, uh, for a lot of things in life. Um, and so I think that, that he is, and I think characters that I play have elements of those. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, I, I think I, I can relate to him, but I think the, the ultimate side, I do try to leave characters behind when I've left them. Um, but, you know, the only thing that stays with me is the, is the elements of myself that I've given to those characters. But that's part of my own life, so that doesn't affect me so much. Um, but I do try to leave the, the characters behind because I think that's, that's, where they, that's where they should be. Well, so then to, to follow up on that, let me ask you to think about your character in the future. <laughs> it, I, I, I don't know. It, it, the game felt like it wrapped up in a very, like, tidy way. But... Um, if there was ever going to be a hypothetical Death Stranding two, uh-huh. what would you hope would happen to Die Hard Man in that game? Um, hypothetically speaking, because that's what it is. Um, I would, I would hope that the character would somehow have completed the things that he needed to complete uh, and bringing the world back together again. Um, and it's kind of hard to say with him because it seems like his, you know, what happened with him and where he ended up, you know, I feel like the door is left open because there could, we could discover what, where he goes from that, um, you know, and, and where his power lies, um, because that, that too could, 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 uh, could change, um, whether, you know, 
whether whether he becomes a, a fall from grace or whether he rises, you know, up from the ashes and continues on doing other things, I don't know. I, I it'd be interesting to see, it, hypothetically speaking, if there was something like that where this character would go. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like him to remain to be the the guy that he is, but you know, it'd be interesting to see, you know. If if there's a a, a a big switch in him, you know, uh, I have no idea. I have not. I mean, I think the possibilities could be endless, but it also depends on on what would be true to the character. You know, what happens to him? What you know, maybe something happens to him uh, that makes him become something else. I don't know. You know, it 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 could be anyone's tale, and if if it's something that Hideo would write, it God only knows what would come out. You know, <laughs> could be anything. It could be anything, anything. So, you know, I'd be interested to see if where where it would go. You know, I'd welcome it regardless because I know that it would just be something different to what what he is. I don't know that people want to necessarily, you know, if he if he was to come back into something, you, you know, to to return again. Well, let's. Let's return with something that would be, you know, uh, either completely different. You don't, I don't, wouldn't want people to uh, guess what it is that he would become or or whatever. I think it would be something that is, oh, we did not see that coming, and this is so cool, you know, um, <laughs> you know, because I think people have a love hate relationship with him. You know, just being honest, I think people either are, you know, and I think it was mainly because. No one saw where his character was going. And because you don't really get him until those last two chapters, I think it is. Uh, but everything up to that point is like, dude, get off my back. I mean, you're, you're really, you know, he's just kind of by the book. This is how it is. Do this, do that. And I think people just think that that's, you know, he become, he's literally just guiding you through the game, you know. Um, and the fact that he does have, uh, you know, an arc um, that people don't expect. And you have to get very far to, to, to see where that comes. Um, you know, so I think it's, I think it is a, a surprise for a lot of people. I don't think they expect it. Um, you know, and certainly not to that degree. Yeah. Cause I think initially, and this is something that we felt too, he, he is kind of a suspicious guy from the from the beginning. <laughs> yes, yeah, I think he is. I think one of the moments I think people find him suspicious. I, th- I think it it might be early on because, like I said, I'm 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 playing the game, but I'm so slow uh, because I, of the time that I have. I'm thinking I'm still in like chapter three or something like that, so I've got a hell of a ways to go. Um, Honestly, so are a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got a hell of a ways to go. Uh, but I think one of the scenes quite early on, I think when uh, the president's in the hospital bed and and Sam comes. I think we just kind of get this sense of mysteriousness about him. And he comes and he speaks to Sam. And, you know, I don't know. There, you, I can understand why people go, oh, I don't know about this dude. You know, I just, I don't. He's wearing this mask. You know, he's a little a little kind of aloof, uh, you know, and calling a little bit of the shots. And, you know, it's all of that. So I, I get that people don't quite know where he is or where he's you know it, it's easy to be I mean, suspicious of it there's there's even a couple characters that are like i don't trust i heard <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty it's pretty funny i know I, I i did come across that at one point i was like come on dude give me a break <laughs> 
Um, yeah. But yeah. what I will say is that, and I'm sure you, you know this, um, your performance, I think, is definitely something you should be proud of. Thank you so much, man. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and thank you so much for joining us and for taking your time out to talk to us today. Absolutely. Uh, really it's, been a, it. oh, it's been a pleasure, man. I've absolutely enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Absolutely. Um, if you'd like, uh, you can tell our listeners where they can follow you. And if you have any projects that you're allowed to talk about, <laughs> please feel free. Uh, listen, it's Tommy Earl Jenkins. You can follow me on Twitter at TJ84. That's T-E-E-J-A-Y-E-84. Or on Instagram, which is Tommy underscore, underscore Earl underscore Jenkins official. It's a little bit long, but you'll find it. Tommy Earl Jenkins official uh, on Instagram. Uh, Facebook page as well, if you want to find that out. I do try to keep things uh, up to date and posting and things like that. Um, projects that I'm working on at the moment, nothing that I can actually uh, talk about, but just stay, follow me on social media and there'll be, I, I will always post things when I can and give you the heads up. So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, I guess that's all there is to say. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you, Tommy. No worries, man. Great to meet you guys. Thank you. I feel you and I might have like a connection. Something, something, something.